Amen. Thank you, Julie. Great song, great thought. Go ahead and get in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 3. I really appreciated our choirs today. Appreciate our uh, people who lead them. I appreciate those who choose to come and practice and participate them, our orchestra. I thank God for them. By the way, if you're somebody, uh, not, I have a voice that's designed to sing in a congregation. In fact, preferably in a congregation not really near anybody. But some of you have a little bit better than a congregational voice. We'd love to have you in the choir. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing. I purposely, when we came in here, I wanted our choir to be up here uh, because everybody's singing in this direction and you can't hear it out there. And I wanted our choir to be singing towards you so you can hear what I hear. You know, it's people lifting their voice to the Lord. And I appreciate uh, that aspect, our teens and our adults and our children uh, as well. 1 Samuel chapter 3. A few weeks ago, we started a 14-message Sunday evening series of random subjects from a big stack of sermon idea cards. By the way, I have a lot of sermon ideas. Some of them are bad ideas. But they're still on my sermon idea cards And I prayerfully picked 14 subjects and planned out some messages for us. Last Sunday night, we talked about taking the for sale sign out of our yard. And we talked about uh, Satan offering Jesus uh, everything the kingdoms of this world have to offer if he would sell his loyalty to his father's plan for his life. Uh, Jesus, as we know, of course, refused. And he used the Bible to defeat Satan's temptation. And we talked about different people in the Bible who were for sale. Uh, People like Judas Iscariot, people like Balaam, people like the prodigal son who there was some price on a key aspect of their life. And if you and I in our hearts uh, are willing to sell uh, something important or something that matters to our faith, listen, Satan will always send a buyer. And we spent a few moments talking about what we can do to not be for sale. We talked about guarding our heart. We talked about keeping ourselves around people and in places that strengthen us. We talked about deciding to be steadfast and unmovable in things that matter most. And we talked about continuing to make effort to keep all of our healthy relationships, uh, all of our good relationships healthy. Uh, Thankfully, every Christian can finish their course with joy without selling anything of value in weak moments and we can avoid living with deep regrets in life and at Christ's judgment seat. Tonight, uh, I would like to talk about keeping the lamp burning. If you're not familiar with the story, a woman with a strained marriage named Hannah was barren for years. She had great faith in God. She prayed for a son that she could return to the Lord. God chose to answer her prayer by giving her a son and She named that son Samuel, which means asked of God. Uh, Hannah kept her special vow to the Lord, and when Samuel was weaned, and and so listen, he's three, maybe four. She takes him to the tabernacle to Eli the high priest and gave him to Eli the high priest to raise and serve God. Uh, The time into which Samuel was born was not a time of revival. It was at the tail end of uh, a time that some call the uh, time of the judges. And if you're familiar with that section of history, uh, the time of the judges was a time when the nation of Israel was on a spiritual roller coaster, so to speak. 
When Samuel was born, as I mentioned earlier, the high priest was a man by the name of Eli, and he was very old. And Eli had been very negligent in how he had raised his sons. As soon as it's always a big deal when a parent is negligent with their children. But it's an especially big deal when the high priest was succeeded by one of his sons. And so this was a big deal. And it seems as if Eli uh, changed his tune. It seems like uh, when he was given Samuel that he come to realize he had been negligent with his own sons. And he really seems to have tried to do a better job in handling Samuel. Kind of like David did with uh, Solomon after being negligent with his older children. And so our story is going to pick up at a time when Samuel's believed to be about 12 years old. He's not a little child like you see sometimes in, in, in pictures. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus said he was 12, and so it is a Jewish tradition. He was about 12 years old at the time of our story. If you could put that first picture up there, uh, that is that little rectangle is the Jewish tabernacle, and the place to the right where you can see the candlestick and the table of shewbread and the incense altar, that's the holy place. And only the priests were allowed in there. You can see that veil and then the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. You know we sing the song, I've found the way through the blood past the veil to the holy of holy of gods. That's God's presence. That's what it's singing, uh, singing about. And uh, Samuel was sleeping in that place with the, col- the candlestick the table of shewbread, the holy place. Go ahead and show the next slide. And that is, uh, the Jew, Jewish people call it menorah. The Bible calls it a lampstand. That's one that's in Israel uh, today that a group have built uh, preparing for the third Jewish temple. Now, I, I don't understand why they made it that size in the Bible. Uh, the lampstand has one talent of gold, which is about... 75 pounds of gold that actually weighs half a ton has 99 pounds of gold so i don't know why they did it that way but that's what it would have looked like and as we're going to see in a moment samuel's sleeping in the holy place and his job is to keep that candlestick lit in the middle of the night uh you can take the picture down See, according to Exodus 27, 20, the children of Israel were supposed to bring uh, pure olive oil that had been beaten out of olives to be the lights, the, the, the fuel in that candlestick. It wasn't pressed, it was to be beaten. They didn't understand that, but it was because Christ was beaten, not pressed. And to make the Spirit of God and light available uh, to you and I. They just obeyed, they didn't understand the symbolism. According to Leviticus 24, 3 and 4, the high priest was supposed to cause the lamps to burn continually at night from evening to morning to make sure there was always light shining on the furniture that pictured Jesus Christ. Uh, The high priest that obeyed this, he had no idea that the table of Shubrid pictured Jesus as the light of the world, and the incense altar was, you know, Jesus as our media. He had no idea what what the symbolism was. He was just obeying what God told him, and this candlestick was to be kept burning by the high priest at night, so the light was always shining on uh, the pictures of Jesus Christ, just like he's always available today. Uh, By the time Samuel was born, the tabernacle was permanently in a place called Shiloh, a city. And it seems by this time, 
although the Bible doesn't record the details, that they'd built some kind of buildings in or around this original tabernacle uh, that was specified by Moses. Uh, when Samuel was born, the lamps and that candlestick in the tabernacle, they had not gone out for 300 years. Aaron lit them in Numbers 8, verses 2 and 3. For 300 years, those lamps had burned continually. Many generations made sure the light didn't go out on the candlestick in the holy place day and night. That light shined on the pictures of Jesus and his great work as our Redeemer and King. That light shined in a place where the priests would burn incense before the veil and bring the showbread in there each week. There was no light in that holy place other than the light from that candlestick. And somebody had to make sure it didn't go out. But Eli was an old man. The Bible says his vision had greatly dimmed. I wonder how an old man could keep the lamps burning on the candlestick. If you're able to stand, if you would stand tonight, please. In honor of the Word of God, the title of our thought is Keep the Lamp Burning. Keep the Lamp Burning. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Verse 1, and the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. It came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. That the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, here am I. And he ran unto Eli. He said, Here am I, for thou callest me. He said, I called not. Lie down again. He went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli, and he said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. Thank you, might be seated. So our story begins in verse 1 when Samuel is described as a child. It says, and the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. Though he was believed to be about 12 years of age, God still considered him a child. By the way, how terrible to read something that, like the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. It was not precious because people realized the value of God's word to their life. It was precious because of its scarcity. And though still a child, Samuel ministered uh, unto the Lord before Eli. Listen, there were things Samuel could do as a 12-year-old boy for the Lord, and he did them. He wasn't waiting till he was 25 like the other Levites waited till they could serve. He wasn't waited till, waiting till he was 30 like the priests waited till they could serve. He did what he could do for the Lord as a child. He could have lamented the fact that he wasn't allowed to offer sacrifices uh, on the altar yet like the priest did. He could have lamented that he was not allowed to serve the priests and carry things around and do things ministering to the priests like the Levites did, but Samuel didn't do that. Instead, he did what he could do. 
Uh, we can only imagine all that would be done for Christ if people in every age bracket did what they could for Christ and his church. Wouldn't that be an interesting thing? Instead of being envious of what others do or living in memories of what they used to do, if everybody just did what they could do regardless of how it compared to what they wish they could do or what they used to do. And though still a child, Eli trusted Samuel with an incredibly important task to keep the candlestick burning in verses 2 and 3. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was and Samuel was laid down to sleep. See, Samuel would have been sleeping in the holy place. Listen, he was technically not allowed in there as a 12-year-old boy. Uh, Levites weren't allowed in there. Priests were allowed in there, but he had to be 30 to be a priest. Uh, whether Eli should have allowed this or not, I don't know. It isn't like Eli was a real careful keeper of the laws of God. Uh, whether Samuel, by some Jewish law, was considered an adopted son of Eli, giving him some birthright to the Levitical priesthood, I don't know. Uh, listen, if you listen to where he's from, it seems like he's from the tribe of Ephraim, or he could have been a Levite living in there. We, we don't know. He's a 12-year-old boy in, in the holy place, sleeping to keep the lights open. Uh, we do know this that Samuel took the things of God really seriously before he became an adult. And in his case, he took the things of God seriously before he even knew the Lord. Uh, we also know that Samuel, uh, sleeping there to keep the light on, was fine with God. <laughs> because God finds him there, and he speaks him there, and he calls out to Samuel into the night and calls him unto salvation. Verses four through six, and the Lord called Samuel. He answered, here am I. It says, and he ran unto Eli. Uh, by the way, he ran the first time. The next two times it says he went. Say, say why? Because he's just a, he's a kid. You, you know, I ran the first time and you say you didn't call me. Next time I ain't running, but I'm going. Verse 5, he ran to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. And he said, I called not, lie down again. He went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, and Samuel arose, and he went to Eli. He said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. You see, God did not rebuke Samuel for being where he was or doing whatever he was doing. He did call Samuel to salvation in verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And if we were to continue reading the story, we would find that the Lord called him to a third time. And uh, finally, Eli says, hey, it's not me, it's God. And God calls to him a fourth time. Now, uh, God must always first speak to the heart of an individual to call them to salvation. L listen, you, you can't lead your child to Christ until God first speaks to their heart about their sins. You can't lead anybody to Christ until God first speaks to them about their sins. I mean, if they do not realize they are a guilty sinner, they cannot seek a Savior. And God is calling Samuel here uh, when he's 12 
to have a relationship with him. Now, Eli, he, he's obviously sleeping somewhere nearby. You say, where? I don't know. There was no provision in the tabernacle for the high priest or priest to sleep there. But Eli is sleeping somewhere close enough for uh, Samuel to come running to him. And uh, Eli was an old man. Samuel's taking care of him. Listen, sometimes old men get up in the middle of the night. If you're young, you don't get that. And uh, I'm sure that it was not unusual for Eli to call for him in the middle of the night. And Samuel, he went to help him because he loved Eli and he was just that kind kind of a kid. And um, in addition to old, I mean, Eli was blind. Um, Most people here, you've heard of a phrase called the age of accountability. The age at which someone becomes accountable to God for their sins. And at that point, they need to be saved. Uh, By the way, that's not a Bible phrase, but it's not a bad phrase. It is a man-made phrase about a biblical event like rapture or trinity. It is the age when someone becomes accountable to God for their sins. Now Samuel, he reached the, quote, age of accountability at 12. The Israelites, whom God delivered from Egyptian bondage, uh, and they were basically ignorant of the laws of God, they didn't reach an accountable age until 20. Uh, there are people all over this room who would testify that you reached an accountable age to God much sooner than 12. I personally believe that age varies according to how much of God's revelation a child is exposed to. It varies according to what kind of natural disposition God has given a child. It varies according to the prayers and life choices of parents. It varies according to God's plan and purpose for a child's future. You say, what, what does that mean? It means there's no number on it. It means that we cannot lead any child to Christ until God first speaks to them about a sin, their, their sins and, and that their sins are separating them from, from God. Uh, I will say this. If you're a child or a teenager here, and God has spoken to you about your sins, and you realize that your sins separate you from God, you are now accountable to God, and you need to be saved. In fact, I would have God you'd turn to God tonight and repent, believe in the Lord Jesus. And when Samuel got up the next morning, he, according to verse 15, let's read it there, it says, and Samuel lay into the morning, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, And Samuel feared to shew Eli the vision. And so in the middle of the night, Samuel had gotten saved. God had given him a message. And he opened the doors. Uh, Again, there were no doors on the Jewish tabernacle. There's some kind of a building there. Uh, But my focus tonight is not on the age of accountability, nor whether Samuel should have or should not have been sleeping in the holy place. My focus tonight is not in verse 3 where the tabernacle is called a temple or verse 15 where it's said to have doors when Solomon's temple would not be built for another 150 years. My focus tonight isn't on the symbolism, the candlestick or the other furniture in the high place, high place, uh, holy place, though uh, all those are interesting, they're applicable, they're part of this story. My focus tonight is on someone keeping the lamp of God from going out. 
That's the real reason Samuel was lying there and sleeping in the holy place in verse 3. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. See, at this point, Eli seemed to have been incapable of doing that because of his age and blindness. But Samuel kept the lamp burning. The people of Israel had no idea if the lamp was still burning. They were not even allowed in the holy place. They had never physically seen the candlestick. All they knew is that the word of God talked about it and the priests saw it and maintained it. Listen, but God knew whether or not the candlestick was still burning, whether the people of Israel knew or not, and whether they cared or not. Listen, the priests had no idea whether the lamp was burning at night. Samuel and Eli, they could have just let it go out at night, and they could have just lit it in the morning before the priest got there and started their duty, and the priest would have not had any idea whether or not it was burning all night. But listen, Eli knew whether it was burning all night, and it's his responsibility, and Samuel knew whether it was burning all night, and it was him helping Eli fulfill his responsibility, and God knew whether or not it was burning at night, and God cared. For 300 years, people beat oil out of olives. Who would have thought olive oil was even flammable? For 300 years, people beat oil out of olives to keep that candlestick burning. And now it was the child Samuel's turn to keep it burning. Many of you have heard me say many times, you and I are not part of something new and trendy or distinctly American. We are part of something ancient. Jesus lit the lamp 2,000 years ago, and the apostles and faithful disciples who knew him, they kept the lamp burning in their generation. And the faithful men and women that knew them and that they trained, they kept the lamp burning in their generation. And they trained faithful people who kept the lamp burning in their generation. And so on until today, 2,000 years later. Listen. The book you and I hold in our hand is ancient. It is not modern. It has not been adjusted or reinterpreted for modern thinking. This book is God's lamp unto our feet. It is God's light unto our path. He still intends that we hide its words in our heart that we might not sin against God. The lamp is burning. Listen, the methods we use here at Bible Baptist Church and any other biblical church uh, to do ministry in many cases are ancient. Listen, there are, some, there are some methods that are biblical methods. And whenever you hear some preacher or teacher stand up and say, hey, our message never changes, but our methods do change, understand that that is a only partially accurate statement. Yes, some of our methods do change, but there are other methods, they're biblical methods, and no one has any business of changing them ever. Listen, the method of going with the gospel is ancient. The method of highly valuing assembling is ancient. The method of being focused on preaching and teaching the Bible is ancient. The method of parents being responsible to train their children in the things of God, that is an ancient method. They, like this book, are God's lamp unto our world. 
some of the applications of biblical principles we embrace are ancient. There's some here tonight and you received them studying history. You read biographies, you read about the stories of the great evangelists and missionaries of the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s and 1900s. We have lots and lots of records of that time when God used English-speaking Christianity and this book to impact the world and world missions in a way that had not been impacted since the first century. There's a lot written about it. We know a lot about it and we know how they applied biblical principles. Some of you learned them from grandparents. Others learned them from parents. Some of you learned them from pastors and seasoned saints who taught us the things of God. I'm talking about applications of Bible principles like living a separated life, forgiving without waiting for an apology, church music not sounding like a pub or a rock concert. I'm talking about the personal, uh, the importance of our personal walk with God. They're, they're God's lamp unto our world. I'm talking about applications of biblical principles like uh, a husband leading his home, like parents leading their children and disciplining them. I'm talking about men loving their families and leading with godly courage. I'm talking about women being the heart of their home. Listen, those are God's lamp unto our world. I'm talking about applications of biblical principles. How about modesty in our clothing? You mean that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. How about kindness in our tongue? How about love for one another in the church and our disposition? How about the burning desire to see people saved and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, burning enough to where we go to the, we carry tracts, burning enough to where we witness to people, burning enough to where we care about missions, burning enough to where we want to see people saved and grow in their faith. Now, listen, that is not a new method. That is a biblical method. It is ancient. It is part of God's lamp in our world. And that lamp, Samuel, as a child, was charged to keep burning, had been burning, again, for 300 years. And it was a child who kept it going in the most difficult part of the day. Listen, it would have been easy during the day when the priests are in and out and, it's, oh, oh, wow, man, we got to light that. Not at night. Listen, it wasn't okay for Eli to decide it didn't matter. It wasn't okay for Samuel to decide his generation didn't need it. It was God's lamp. I, I think most people here on a Sunday night, you understand that there are a lot of ancient biblical things that are God's lamp that are not only going out, there are some people even under the banner of Christianity purposely putting them out. It is bad enough if God's lamp goes out because of carelessness, but it is even worse when those who have been charged with keeping the lamp burning intentionally put it out as their pride gets the best of them when they think previous generations of believers were all spiritually ignorant. You and I will never keep the lamp of God burning in our generation if we consider those who went before us ignorant and inferior. Listen, one of the great problems of our culture is they think that people who wrote our founding documents, well, they're, they're idiots. Well, they wouldn't even know how to use an elevator. 
Well, you moron, they'd go in there and push a button, they'd figure it out in nine seconds. Uh, listen, they, uh, maybe you're not like this, but everything I do, do you know the key I use most? Backspace. So why do you use backspace all the time? Because I wrote something wrong. I, I, I can hardly actually sit and write out something longhand because I look back and say, ah, that's not a good way to say it. Have you ever, I mean, those guys just sat down w with a pen and they were so brilliant. I mean, brilliant. To, to be able to write like that, and, and we somehow think that, you know, because they don't know how to use a smartwatch or a smartphone or a computer or a satellite, uh, that there's something on. Listen, they knew God. They, they knew God's word. Listen, how much better would we know God and God's word if we did not have a phone, if we did not have a television? I mean, think about it. Listen, I, I have a phone, I have a television, I'll have my hand up and say, you know what, I spend too much time on both of those things. And, but, but they didn't, the, the, it wasn't like us, well, I'm too weak to let them go. They, they didn't have a choice. I mean, they were brilliant. They, they knew God, they walked with God. They were greatly used by God. That, that's why you hear me saying here all the time, I would to God that everybody in here would pick up Christian biographies and learn what these great men and women were like and how God used them. It would change our thinking and when we think we're so superior to them. Listen, if modern methods and contemporary Christianity's view of worship, holiness, music, home, morality, and alcohol were so superior, if it's really superior, why does Christianity have less impact in our culture today than ever? You don't have to be some great historian. Go back 70 and 100 years and find the impact biblical Christianity had on our culture, and today it is nothing compared to that. What's going on is not superior, it is inferior. Listen, the Christianity of our forefathers, it shut down bars instead of scheduling Christian meetings at them. The Christianity of our forefathers, it was at the point of the spear of the temperance movement not having parties and tailgate parties with alcohol in the church parking lot. Something's wrong. Oh, I mean, why? Honestly, why are so many believers between the age of 18 and 30 walking away from biblical Christianity for a version of Christianity that has no more than 90 minutes of impact on you a week? Does anybody think about these things? If it's really so much better, why doesn't it work? And so I want to leave you some thoughts about us being more like Samuel, for you and I to keep the lamp burning in the darkness of this generation. Again, you've heard me say this lots of times. If you and I would have been better off in the generation of 1920 when things were better, by the way, it was not better to go out in a cold night to the outhouse. Uh, if, if, if we'd have been better off then, if you and I would have had a better chance to find and fulfill God's plan for our life, he'd have put us then. I believe you and me, I believe we're chosen for this generation. 
That's true tonight. If you're here and you're five, that's true if you're here tonight and you're the oldest person in here, probably 85 or six. Chosen. And so I want to just give you some ideas. They're not deep. About what we need to do to keep the darkness, the light burning in the darkness of our generation. Here's number one. Someone needs to light the lamp and keep it burning in our family, our church, and our culture. Someone. Have you ever really thought that everything good starts with one person? If you ever pay attention to what goes on in, in, in churches, I mean, what you'll notice a lot of times is there's one person who's the spearhead that keeps a whole family in church or gets a whole family coming to church or is the person who keeps their family in church. Everything starts with one person. One person. Sometimes the dad, sometimes a mom, sometimes a grandparent, sometimes a teenager focused on Christ. Listen, in an ideal world, every man would be the spiritual leader of the home, but we don't live in an ideal world. In the real world, sometimes husbands don't step up. Thank God for wives that do when husbands don't. In the real world, sometimes husbands step up and wives refuse. Uh, listen, I've known children and teens literally be the light to their whole family. I've known teenagers, uh, listen, I've known teenagers win their mom, their dad, their siblings, and their cousins to the Lord. I've known teens to get their parents to be committed Christians because they decided, uh, hey, I don't want to stay home on Sunday morning. Hey, I don't want to stay home on Sunday night. Hey, I don't want to stay home on Wednesday. Hey, well, take me. J j just like, you know, you might nag you to go to King's Island. Somebody needs to keep the lamp burning in your family. Will it be you? Hey, listen, somebody needs to be the one in your home that, that says, you know what, we're going to pray. Somebody needs to be the one in, in, in your home that says, you know what, we're going to have a little family devotion tonight. So somebody needs to be the one who says, you know what, if my wife isn't going to do it, if my kids aren't going to do it, I will be the one. It always starts with someone. Will you decide to step up in your circle if no one steps up? This is a, just, to me, it's a very penetrating question. Do you really want the next generation in your family to know little or nothing about biblical Christianity? Do, do, do you know, when, when I came to a biblical church for the first time at 24, uh, I had never experienced biblical Christianity in my life. I know people who grew up in biblical churches, taught Sunday school, were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night people, taught why they believed the King James Bible was the word of God, why Baptist doctrine was biblical doctrine, and today their grandchildren have no idea about any of those things. Do, do you really want your children or grandchildren, do you really want them never to experience what we're blessed to experience all the time? Do, do you realize some people, all they know is you go for an hour, you sing and you quote, worship God, you have the quote, worship experience, and then you get choked the Bible for 10 or 15 minutes and, and you go home. They, they, they know nothing. See, somebody let the lamp go out. 
Are, are you going to be somebody who keeps a lamp burning in your family with your friends? Listen, there's people, they literally have never heard a man of God stand up and preach the Bible. They've never heard a man of God stand up and teach the scriptures with the authority with which they're given to us. All they've ever heard is some guy in skinny jeans and a t-shirt sit on a stool and reason with him. They never knew a preacher has a vein in his forehead. Will you let criticism and negativity stop you from keeping the lamp burning in your circle of life for Christ? But it's not just that someone needs to keep the lamp burning for Christ, our families and in our churches, our cultures. Here's number two. These are deep. People who are younger need to step up to keep the lamp burning in your generation. Okay? If you're here tonight and you're between five and 25, who's going to be the next generation of teachers, deacons, pastors? Are are there any young people here who'll step and say, I'll be the one to preach? Do we have any young men who'll say, you know what, I will stand in the gap. I will walk with God in the shadows. I will make less money with my life. I will do something more important than live in a four or five bedroom house. I will do something more important than let's live for a 401k. Listen, there's nothing wrong with good jobs and nice houses. I'm just saying this. We need some young people to step up and say, I will stand in my generation. Listen, it doesn't get easier just because you get older. The lamp isn't easier to keep burning after you're married. It's not easier to step up and be faithful after you have children. It's not easier to step up after your children are grown or you're retired. Listen, what are we waiting for? Well, listen, where are the young couples in here tonight who will have a burden for other young couples? Who will look around and say, you know what, there's somebody my age. You know what, I'm going to make them feel welcome. I'm going to do something with them. But by, by the way, thank God for some of our just kind, gentle, gracious senior adults who uh, make people feel welcome. Listen, I, I often think, man, if Christ tears, what are we going to do as time goes on? Who's going to who's going to be the next generation of smilers and handshakers? Where are the people between 19 and 26 burdened for the people your age? Is it really better to raise your children focused on the world instead of Christ and the church? Is it really better for your children to know all the pop songs but few of the hymns filled with doctrine and history? Listen, I love sports. I love kids' sports. I love to watch sports. I love to play sports. I love to talk about sports. But understand this. Listen, when your child knows more about famous athletes than famous characters in the Bible, something is wrong. Will you decide to be useful in your youthful years? Will you decide to keep the lamp burning while you're young instead of waiting until you're older? Or will you allow the criticism of your peers and complacency of those who are older stop you from keeping God's lamp burning? But it's not just that those who are younger 
need to keep the lamp burning now instead of waiting till they're older. Again, these are deep. Here's number three. Sometimes it's not prominent people who keep the lamp burning. Listen, the task of burning the lamp was given to Aaron. Everybody knew Aaron. It's Moses' older brother, first high priest. By the way, everybody knew Aaron's son, Eleazar, who took Moses' place. Uh, everybody knew Phineas, Eleazar's son, who was zealous for the Lord and had an interesting story about a spear through somebody's belly. Read the Bible, super interesting. Everybody knew Eli in Samuel's day. He was a high priest. But listen, nobody knew Samuel. He was a kid. He was not a prominent man. He was not somebody with a position. He was just a kid who stepped up and said, you know what? I will keep the lamp burning. I can do this. You know, most of the people in your circle of life will never meet or know me. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, and that's on purpose. Most of the people here, you'll never get much of a chance to know me personally. That doesn't make me happy, but it's just the reality of it. Listen, uh, when we had 20 people at Bible Baptist Church, I had the same amount of time that was divided in 20 slices. Uh, those slices are thinner today. I, I wish I could disciple everybody myself. Chris Skinner, my daughter-in-law, Sarah Clyde, who's here tonight. Nate Karen. I, I-, I wish I could disciple everybody person. I can't. I-, I wish I could do more. I wish I could be more available. I, I wish I could r- really invest more personally. In- but I can't. Somebody has to keep the lamp burning. Somebody in each class, somebody in each ministry, somebody in each segment of the Lord's work. Listen, somebody's got to say, I will keep the lamp burning and I will invest in new people around here. Can I ask a rhetorical question? Yes, Brother Wally, I'd love for you to. How long do you have to come here before you stop expecting people to come to you and you become the one who reaches out to new people. At what point are you going to keep the lamp burning instead of just expecting to live in the light of someone else who has it burning? Listen, you know what I've come to realize over the years? Most of God's work is not done because someone has a position or title. It's done because some believer decides to light the lamp and keep it burning. I'm not implying gifted people in positions shouldn't light the lamp in their circle. I'm just saying this, that when each of us decide that we have a responsibility to light the lamp and keep it burning in our life instead of just living off of others fulfilling their responsibility, then it's going to remain lit. There's people in this room, you're physically able, you literally don't do anything here. You don't make someone feel welcome. You never text anybody. You never call anybody. You don't work in a cleaning crew. You don't work in a lawn crew. You don't teach a class. You don't volunteer for a work team. You, don't, you, 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 don't, you, you literally don't leave your square. You just come here and you leave. And by the way, I'm glad you're here. But, but understand, God didn't create you just to sit in your little peg hole. 
There, there's a lamp for you to light. Listen, I, I would have got every person here tonight that you took personal responsibility for people who sit near you. You ought to know when someone sits near you, well, I don't recognize them. Hi, how are you doing? My name. Oh, it's so good to see you. It's your first time here? And then when they say, I've been a member here for five years, you think to yourself, well, probably I need a better question. It's like you never ask a woman, hey, are you pregnant? You need a better question. Man, it's good to see you here today. I don't remember seeing you here lately. Do you usually sit somewhere else? No, it's my first time here. Oh, wow. Man, I'm so glad you're here. I mean, listen, who's going to do that? Uh, listen, uh, I, I don't have what my old pastor, brother, president, he had a very magnetic personality. He just wanted to be around. Listen, I'm not like that. People, by and large, they say, well, you know what? I like Brother Wally, but I like him in small doses and at a distance. Uh, uh, listen, will you decide to be part of God's work by reaching out and lifting others and be a part of God's lamp staying burning? Or will you allow your fears your comfort with your family and friends to keep you from keeping the lamp lit to a bigger circle of people. But it's not just that the lamp often remains because of people. Few others recognize. Lastly, tonight, number four. So you're preaching a long time. I am. It's okay. Uh, I'll give the nursery people a $5 Starbucks card. Not Starbucks, maybe Bigsby. Here's number four. Those who are old and weary need to keep the lamp burning. You know, far too many American Christians dream of retiring and traveling and doing nothing. You know what I'm hungry for? Some people who dream of retiring so they could put more time in the things of God. I, Jim and Betty Adams changed my whole outlook. I used to kind of have a lot of resentment for people who would go to Florida for a few months a year because all the ones I knew, they did not do anything here because they were gone in the winter, and then they didn't do anything there because they were only there for a few months. And, and I thought to myself, that's no way to live your Christian life. I don't care how warm you are. And, and then I, I met them, and they actually served here, and they served there. Changed my whole outlook. See, the younger generation needs us as much as we need them. I know you, this doesn't happen to you, but I get sick of going places, sitting to talk to some older Christian and, and, and listening to them gripe about this generation. Uh, honestly, it just, it just grates my nerves. And I will always say something like, you know what, there's some good people in this generation. And this generation is the way they are because we raised them. That's kind of a buzzkill in a conversation. But I get sick of it. Can, can, can I just say I'm trying to keep the lamp lit for my children and my grandchildren as long as God will give me strength. I want every child in our nursery to find what I found 40 years ago when I walked into a biblical church for the first time. I want everybody that walks into Bible Baptist Church today 
to find the same thing they found 17 years ago when they walked into a UAW service with a handful of people. I, I want children and teens to find the same thing in me that I found in my old pastor. Somebody who loved God, somebody who loved me, somebody who preached the Bible as best as he was able. He just spent himself doing that. I don't want the lamp to go out. You may like poetry. I kind of hate it. I have written a few poems, mostly to my wife when we were dating. I write a few of them. I wrote one the other day. She didn't even hang it up. But I, don't, I just don't like reading poetry. Now, if you like it and you're sophisticated and fancy like that, good for you. Um, but I do like this poem. It's written by Will Allen Dromgoole. It's called The Bridge Builder. Some of you may have heard it. It says, an old man going a lone highway came the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide through which was flowing a swollen tide. An old man crossed in the twilight dim. The rapids held no fear for him. But he turned when safe on the other side, and he built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, cried a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your time in building here. Your journey will end at the closing of day. You never again will pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you this bridge at even tide? And the builder lifted his old gray head, Good friend, in the path I've come, he said, there follows after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This stream, which has been naught to me, to that fair youth may a pitfall be. He too must cross in a twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building this bridge for him. I challenge every seasoned saint in here to just decide that your life is not about you. Listen, there's going to come a day if Christ tarries when my eye will be dim and I'll no longer be able to keep the light burning. I don't know when that's going to be. God gives me strength and grace. The last thing I do before I die, I'll bite the devil in the ankle. I used to tell boys that all the time, listen, you mess with me, you know, fight me, fine, but I'll just understand that the last thing I do is I will bite your ankle. And I used to tell them I'd fight dirty. Hey, listen. Somebody has to say there's more to this life than what this world is involved in. And somebody has to decide I'm going to keep the lamp burning. Amen. If you'd quietly stand.